This is the People Make Things podcast, a behind-the-scenes look at the modern entertainment industry. I'm your host, Christopher Natsume. I'm a game developer, I'm a podcaster, I'm a live streamer, and I'm also an entrepreneur. The internet knows me a little bit better as Night Squirrels. We have a great show today. We're going to be talking about leadership, we're going to be talking about diversity, and we're going to be having that conversation with Megan Geyser, who is, uh, for most people listening to the show, she needs no introduction. She's one of the luminaries in the game industry. She was the president and CEO for Her Interactive, uh, who are responsible for the Nancy Drew games. She was also the executive producer for the 21st Century Leadership for Diversity Summit, and she's currently the principal for Contagious Creativity in Seattle. Welcome to the show. How are you doing today, Megan? Good. Thanks for having me, Chris. It's 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 actually an honor to have you here. And I, you know, I've I've known you for years and and people who are in the casual space in the industry, obviously everybody knows who you are, but I think there's people who listen to this who aren't coming from that that part of the game industry and they may not know your history. And I I'd, I'd like to just start with your how did you get into the industry and why did you get into game story, if you don't mind? Sure. Uh well, uh, uh, I fluked into this industry, um, like many people. Um, I heard about Her Interactive, that they had a license for Nancy Drew, and um, and I loved Nancy Drew growing up. She was my idol, uh, and I'm a storyteller, and I love the story, and I thought it could be very cool to create this empowering game. Even though I knew nothing about video games, I played games as a kid. Uh, and so I, I took the job as creative director, and we created our first Nancy Drew game. This was back in uh, <clears throat> 97. And we took it to the publishers to get on the retail shelves, and uh, we were told, uh, I'm sorry, but girls and women are computer phobic, so we're not going to take your game in retail. <laughs> yeah, I remember those days. <laughs> you do. <laughs> uh, and I was, you know, completely stunned, but um, stunned, number one, at what they said, and stunned because this was the prevailing conventional wisdom of the time. Oh, absolutely. So, absolutely. so I, it wasn't just one person. It was all of them were, and they were kind of looking at me like, you know, get a clue. Don't you know, you know, like this is like, why didn't I know that? Yep. So I want to talk a little bit about, about Nancy Drew. And I, I just have to throw this out here. Actually, I grew up reading Hardy Boys. It was my favorite books when I was a kid. I, I read every one of them. Everyone I know who grew up and and I think you and I are of a similar generation, uh, this is what we read when we were kids. And if you were a, if you were a girl, you read Nancy Drew. And if you were a boy, you read Hardy Boys. And that's just kind of how it was. Yeah, you know, I, I thought that too. But actually, um, what we found when we um, talked to girls uh, and boys and men, actually, is that uh, a lot of um, boys actually read Nancy Drew and a lot of girls read the Hardy Boys. And uh, so, uh, but for the most part, you know, it was segregated. Well, uh, I, I grew up in Texas, so I'm pretty sure if I had read Nancy <laughs> Drew, that would have been worth a beatdown in Dallas. Right. So, <laughs> right, right. It was really so incredible that back in the 90s, um, well, and it's not incredible looking at the world now, um, 
you know, that that sexism was uh, was kind of under the current as opposed to now. Um, but essentially, we were um, not allowed in. We basically they they decided to exclude half the population in an emerging medium and one that's all about playing games. So it was it was absolutely insane. Uh, you know, they if from a financial point of view, because they were excluding half of the uh, potential market. Well, you know, it's so easy to look back now. I mean, everybody who knows anything at all about video games knows that, you know, half or more of the audience is female now. And, and you know, it, it, it's not really something you have to teach people at this point. But looking back, it's it's crazy to think there was a time that we, we never envisioned this. Uh, and, and obviously you did um, and, and other people did. But but the, the, the conventional wisdom when I started games was exactly like you say. I mean, I can remember going to my first E3 and it was it was the one that they held in Atlanta. I can't remember. It was in ninety four, ninety five, something like that. And uh, you know, the only women that were at that E three were the were the booth babes that were paid to be there. The women were just absolutely excluded from the industry. And to go to a game convention now and compare now to then, it's just uh, it's night and day. It's night and day, and yet uh, fundamentally, so much has not yet changed. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, and, and that's I want to I want to get to that and and I want to talk about a lot of that uh, later on in in the interview. But before we get to it, I want to talk just a little bit about design and about the Nancy Drew games. And I want to dig into that a little bit because one of the things that that when you say so much hasn't changed, one of the things that still hasn't changed is I still go into creative meetings with you know high level executives that you think must know something and. They start telling you, okay, we're going to make a game for girls, so it needs to be about fashion. And mm -hmm. and, and you, you just stop, and you're like, have you not paid attention for the last – tell me about but, – but when you were building the Nancy Drew games, you didn't have the historical record of quality games that women appreciate that we have now to look back on and say, no, 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 it doesn't all have to be about fashion. Look, women – so tell me about building Nancy Drew. I, I want to hear that story. So – the, um, it's it's funny you said that because we were advised that if we're going to make a game for girls, make it pink and they'll come. And they were serious. And we made it unpink. Uh, you know, we we because because see, there's stories everywhere. The fact that mm -hmm. there weren't games out there really didn't matter. You know, there's there's uh, just you know being. Um, Knowing the stories uh, of Nancy Drew, the empowering, she was intelligent, smart, gutsy, daring. She didn't take no for an answer. I mean, she's just the iconic role model. And back in the 30s, uh, women, you know, couldn't do a lot of things compared to now. So she really, when when you say the name Nancy Drew, women, you know, literally kind of move their bodies to bow down to her. Uh, <clears throat> so... You know, we we blended entertainment and education in such a seamless and non-spinachy way that, uh, you know, the girls were having so much fun they didn't even know they were learning. Uh, we we infused cultural and historical references uh, and characters to give them a sense of of what is possible of what came before them so they can imagine, you know, what could come in the future. Because 
as you know, if, if you can see it, you can be it. And um, we were really excited because, uh, you know, the games were um, successful in inspiring these girls. And we got a lot of um, testimonials from them telling us that they were so inspired, they went on to become scientists and cryptologists and uh uh, you know, history teachers and on and on and on. We even had an, a NASA astronaut who was our moderator um, for a long time. So, uh, you know, that fueled our sense of pride. And, you know, as a team, we really felt so um, honored and privileged to be able to uh, and and there was such intrinsic satisfaction creating something that was of value that that um, you know resulted in in this customer or fan satisfaction. It was just uh, a remarkable um, thing. You know, for me, it was interesting. We we went on this journey, and I, I brought this up because I, I had a you know we we did games. That we we never we as a studio never said let's make games for girls. We just said let's make games based on these interesting topics, and come to find out, something like sixty-five to seventy percent of our users ended up being female, and it was never for us a let's go make games for women thing. It was let's go make interesting games about yes. about topics that haven't been done yet, right? I mean. Orcs and dragons and swords and tanks. Okay, we've seen how many games with those things? And so, you know, we put together a game where the lead character was a, a romance novelist who saw ghosts and she learned stories from history about ghosts because we hadn't seen that before. And we didn't do that because we thought, oh, women, women really love ghosts. We just thought that was a fun story and we thought it was a nice vehicle for having a character wander around Europe. And... Come to find out, if you write interesting stories about interesting subjects, people come play those games, and lo and behold, a lot of those people are women. Yeah, and I think we're 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 saying the same things in a lot of ways for us because women weren't uh, even in the equation. You know, yeah. we we wanted to direct the content towards them, but I agree with you. You know, if the content isn't interesting, it doesn't matter you know, who you're trying to make for, don't make it. Yeah. You know, one of the things, going back to the Nancy Drew games, because I played the Nancy Drew games, and I thought they were wonderful, uh, personally. Uh, I, I actually stole some ideas from some of the Nancy Drew games. Uh, well, a lot of people did. They, they were hard. Um, a lot of people needed cheat sheets, including me. Oh, me too. They yeah, they were, they, were, they were very challenging. They're very intellectually challenging. But uh, one, one thing that I, I remember taking away from the Nancy Drew games was, as a man, I didn't feel out of place playing a Nancy Drew game. Yeah, they, you know, that that's true. And you're right. Uh, boys played the game, games until they reached like uh, 12 or 13. And then it kind of didn't become cool to play Nancy Drew. So they stopped. But then men were playing Nancy Drew. So it was very interesting. We had about 10% of our audience uh um, male audience played our games. You know, we actually in our, you know, we did a series of a lot of hidden object games and we had a very similar breakdown that honestly, I can't say that there were a lot of, you know, 16 or 20 year old guys playing our game, but we did have a lot of sort of fathers and older men playing our game. And I guess there's that period 
in in a man's life where you know just like I was saying before when I was a kid I couldn't have gone to school with a Nancy Drew book in my hand because there's some sort of unwritten rules about what men are allowed to do and what women are allowed to do and it, and it goes for men too that there's certain subjects and things that we're not allowed to express as men and so for for a certain demographic yeah Nancy Drew is off limits and there's something weird about the fact that women consume a great deal of media in which the main heroes of the, the, the novels are men, but when men start consuming media where the main heroes of the novels are women, for for men that's somehow emasculating. Well, yeah, and that's how they've kept us in our places for so long uh, as genders, uh, which has really kind of alienated us from each other. But luckily that's breaking down now. It shouldn't matter. It didn't matter we just bought into the peer pressure uh, at the time, which actually kept our perspectives even more limited. No, it's absolutely true. It's it's it's, uh, it's ironic. We're having this conversation. I don't know if you're a big Doctor Who fan, uh, but obviously some of the people listening really. to this are. Uh, they they just announced that the new Doctor Who, and I guess they have it. I'm not a huge Doctor Who, Who fan either, but many people are. And there's a new Doctor Who every few years. And I guess they just announced that the brand new Doctor Who is going to be female. And oh, it's the first it. female Doctor Who in history. And much as you, you know, and, and, and as it's, it's so obvious that it's going to happen. The Internet has lost its collective mind about this. <laughs> right. Great. Well, it, in good and bad ways, of course, there's a whole legion of Doctor Who fans who are, you know, on the jumping on the, oh, well, it's just the thing that's happening now where every lead character has got to be a woman. And you, you think it's not every lead character, it's that one. And it's still way less than male lead characters. But still, there's that huge resistance to the idea that we can take something that I guess guys have owned for so long and say, well, OK, let's let's, you know, we, we know there's a bunch of women that love Doctor Who. Maybe they should have a female Doctor Who, too, to, to have as something, and this shouldn't be a big deal. But for because of these gender roles that we've just set ourselves in, we've just decided, no, that can't happen. I, I just, it, that's so insane, Chris. <laughs> I, I know, right? It's insane. <laughs> Let's just leave it at that. It, but but you know it's 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 what's what's crazy to me is, is it's not just that one thing we we've seen it in recent uh, popular media happen over and over again it was the same thing when they did the the new Star Wars and oh look there's a black character in the new Star Wars and oh the leading character is Rey and she's a woman and you know there was there was like one side of the world that said yay cool let's finally we finally have a black dude in in Star Wars about time for that right. And then there was a whole nother camp that was like, who are you to put black people in Star Wars and all these crazy spurious, you know, uh, geeky reasons why that couldn't exist. But there's just that that there's, you know, like I was saying earlier, you go to E3 now and there's there's plenty of women at E3 now, but that doesn't mean the problem's over. You know, it doesn't mean we've solved everything. There's still this this crazy knee jerk reaction to inclusion in in popular media. It's true. And. And, uh, you know, for the past couple of years, I've been doing uh, panels uh, on diversity and leadership and creativity and the link between them. And uh, what's been interesting is that, you know, they were they were, uh, you know, we did fine, but it didn't really seem like people were um, really listening 
They thought it was interesting, uh, you know, leading a different way, uh, leading creatively, leading from the heart. But, um, you know, it, it didn't really resonate until uh, Trump got in office. And uh, we recently did a Bucking the Status Quo 21st Century Leadership for Diversity panel a couple months ago in San Francisco at GameSpeed. And uh, that panel really, really resonated. And, uh, you know, I thank Trump for that. He is going to make America great again. <laughs> uh, because, you know, we had this groundswell and continue to have um, uh, these conversations. There are so many people out there who are joining efforts, men and women across uh, companies to uh, to begin to model and support each other to model a different kind of leadership because leadership is behavior, not authority. So I want to go back. I want to go back to our conversation earlier about about her interactive and about about that studio. I'm going to go out on, on an assumption that, that being the CEO of that studio, you were involved in trying to create a diverse, welcoming environment there. How did yeah. you do that? So I didn't consciously uh, create a diverse environment. It happened organically. Um, and I think what created that is our culture. Um, and as I... You know, as I said, we were kind of ousted. We were on our own. And um, so we had a lot of obstacles to overcome. One, they wouldn't let us into retail. And uh, so we kept overcoming these obstacles. We uh, we found someone to teach us how to publish on Amazon. And uh, and then the game sales took off. And that's when the publishers came back and, and let us into retail. And. So we you kept asking ourselves, how is this happening, that we are overcoming these odds in such a hostile environment? And I emailed one guy and said, hey, I think it's because of this. What do you think? And then I emailed another and said, you know, look, we keep overcoming these obstacles. Why do you think it is? And so that actually became fodder for our culture document. Uh, I took all that feedback and that became the values we we were already practicing the values of respect and creative collaboration and uh you so, know. so hold up hey, hey, tell me about I, i've never worked in a studio that had a culture document tell me about this culture document uh so basically i just uh took the feedback mine and 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 the you know the employees that um you know i was talking to and and just created this document of of who we are uh, as as a company, and it was we were already modeling that respect and inclusivity, and um, wanting to you know inspire using our creative gifts, and you know I, I mean, which which is the chicken or the egg? Did the culture document help to create the culture, or does the culture document simply a a record of a culture that already existed? It's a re it was a record of a culture that we that already existed. So so my question is how did you how did you get to that culture? This is this is the answer I'm trying to dig down to because there's so many people oh. that want to have this. How do I? I've got a little small studio and I want to ha I want someday I want to have a culture document. I want to have a culture so great that we have to put it on paper. That sounds cool. How do I get there? We were a bunch of people who came together 
uh, creating one of there were no games for girls. So that was kind of this opportunity that we we saw. And, um, you know, we we basically um, were a very diverse group of people. And myself, I um, played a lot of sports growing up. So I love the dynamic of a team and uh, coming together with lots of different talents to win. Uh, and uh, so I looked at our team as, you know, kind of being on a sports team. We all have different talents. I was, uh, you know, an unconventional CEO. I had no formal financial, technical, or management skills uh, when they uh, offered me the job, uh, but I was raised creatively, and so I led that way, and I led with curiosity. I let people know what I knew and didn't know, uh, and that, I think, allowed people to step up and, you know, um, and so basically we were uh, a gang. We were this team of uh, excited kids with uh, an opportunity to prove something that we knew needed to be created. And we were hell-bent on creating the most amazing, empowering, inspiring game for girls that we could imagine. And so it was fun. I mean, we literally played our way into success. There's there's another phrase that I've I've heard a number of times in this this discussion. Uh, leading with your heart, um, to to be a, a to have leadership that comes from the heart. And I'm wondering, in the same way, whether it was you or whether it was someone you worked with or someone you know about, can can you give me some examples of of what that actually looks like? Leading with an open mind. It's it's leading with uh, your creativity, and leading from your head is analytical, logical literal thinking, which is the way that we currently lead. And often that way of leading is uh, is not open-minded. Uh, case in point, they wouldn't allow games for girls to exist. Uh, so this, this is a hard sell in the modern world of mobile games because, I mean, when, when I go to conventions, when I go talk to people, it's all about show me your metrics, show me exactly what the right. numbers are, show me right. exactly what you've done. I need a game that has this kind of LTV. If it doesn't, I'm not even interested in talking to you. Like it, we have bec every meeting that I go to and, and every meeting that I've been to in the last 10 years has grown increasingly data driven. And I've been told in a hundred conventions that that's good, that it's all about data driven decision making. And I, I should, you know, to the point now where there are literally uh, people arguing for stock traders should be robots and all stock trading should be purely data driven by algorithms. So in that world, you're saying, no, nah, we shouldn't be doing that. No, not at all. That's that's where we're going wrong. That's why we need to fundamentally change leadership. Uh, data has replaced wisdom. And the only way we're going to get back to meaning is by leading uh, from the heart. Uh, supported by the head and uh, you know data 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 it's you know it's 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 not the leading driver it is important uh, but it, it goes back to what we were saying before uh, you know making a product just to make a product makes no sense whatsoever you know it's it's important to 
to fundamentally create something of value that is going to, uh, you know, enliven, uplift, uh, inspire, you know, that's, we need more of that. You know, it's funny. I, I apologize for telling a story from my own experience, but I, I have to tell this story at this point. Um, we were making hidden object games. Uh, we were working with Big Fish, and Big Fish came back. We had this one scene in a hidden object game, and it was uh, it was a window that had a spider web on it, and there was a little sub game where you had to match the spiders, right? And we got a note back from them. You can't have the sub game. You have to take the sub game out. We have data that says our users hate spiders. And so from now on, you can't put any spiders in your games because our users hate spiders. And so we redesigned the scene and we made it vines. We put flowers in the window and I didn't think any more of it. And then the week that we released our game, the number one game out on the Big Fish site was called Queen of the Spider Women. Oh, no. <laughs> and it was it was. I don't know if it was Queen of the Spider Women, but it was something. It was, it was Spider Queen or what? It had the words Spider and Queen in it. I forget. And it and it was number one for for weeks. And it was all about spiders. And it had. And I thought to myself, so funny. This, this is exactly it. Somebody came to me, and 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 what I realized from it is data is always so backwards looking because you have to interpret that data, right? Yeah. And so they, they had all this data of we had games that had spiders in them, and so we decided we didn't want spiders in games anymore. And bit by bit, it becomes a reductive process where we start saying, I have data that says we shouldn't do this, and I have data that says we shouldn't, because it's much easier to find data that says you tried this and it failed, because most things fail, right? And so time after time, you have data that says don't do this, don't do this, and you begin cutting away all of your options until you're left with this very tiny option set. And then you say, okay, with this tiny option set, now go make something wonderful. And you say, well, with all of these restrictions, I can't. You know, There's all kinds of things I can't do because your data tells me I can't. And then while you're busy doing that, someone else who doesn't have all that data and doesn't have all these restrictions makes something wildly different that does all the stuff that you weren't supposed to do, and it's incredibly successful. Well, case in point. Yeah, it's... Uh, for for me, you know, this this question of uh, leading with the heart speaks to me quite honestly because as as a leader myself, you know, I run a I run a game company, and as as a as a guy who makes decisions for my company, I'm constantly feeling the pressure from our publishers, from our distributors, from you know marketers, from advertising agencies, all of them saying, here we've got all this data, you need to do things this way, and it seems to me that every convention that we go to is lecture after lecture of let me share a bunch of numbers with you that explain to you how you should run your business. I, I think, you know, it's turned around. I think that we should be focusing on making meaning and money in that order. And that's what's missing. Um, you know, I we had a lot of success at Her Interactive for for a while. and um, And one story that I think is the proudest moment I, I felt there is six months before I left uh, in 2013, we got a call from Make-A-Wish Foundation. Mm -hmm. And one of our uh, fans who had been playing the game since she was nine years old contracted terminal cancer at age mm -hmm. 16. Uh, her name was Rachel, and her last dying wish was to meet the team. So we rented a car and we drove there and we uh, walked in 
and Rachel was in the living room. She was uh, hunched over, semi-conscious, surrounded by her entire family. And uh, we had the voice of Nancy Drew say her name and how special she was. And I, I put my hand on her shoulder and I could literally feel her feeling the love. And we left and we're driving home and the mom called and she said, Rachel just passed away and she got her wish. And that was just the most remarkable moment. Um, for me and for the team and you know it just um it, it just was uh I, I don't know how you would put a price tag on that yeah I don't know how, don't know how you compare <laughs> that to a financial decision but you don't you don't hear that in the you know I I have not heard that that lecture at the conventions lately you know what, what I what I see at the conventions is you know data-driven uh, monetization, blah, blah, blah. And how do we, how do we change this? Cause th this is really interesting to me as a creator, as a creative person, as a business owner, how do I go about changing the culture of the industry that I'm in? That is so profit driven, that is so data driven, that is so, I mean, look, face it, it's, it's a quite cold industry in many yeah. ways, I know. but you, but you can pull a story like that out of the industry how do we how do we change that how do we how do i as a business owner and a and a, a guy that you know is in the industry how do i change that changing any system starts with changing ourselves honestly and you know i felt like a fish out of water um, still do in this industry uh because i um you know came from film which was all about creative collaboration all about creating meaning and inspiration that was the that was the focus, and then the money followed. And mm -hmm. so I came into an industry that was completely the opposite. We actually did that with Nancy Drew for a decade of success, which was great. Um, so we proved them wrong, and we proved that the same way in which, you know, you create inspiring films, you can create uh, uh, a game series that wins lots of awards, makes a lot of money. Um, but uh, then when the economy crashed, uh, I crashed. So I fell into fear and I, you know, didn't have the skills. Everything was, you know, the, the platforms were changing the um it went from you know 1999 down to 699 you remember this chris oh yeah and uh i didn't you know one of my learnings to, was to, to I, 399 to 99 to, cents to, let's give it away free and hope yeah, we can get right. a nickel out of them on the right. back end yep yep right. i remember it well <laughs> so i didn't have those skills uh and i didn't my learning one of the many learnings was that I didn't have the senior executives on staff to help pivot uh, as quickly as we needed to. And even if I had had them, I don't know that we would have been able to, uh, you know, gracefully uh, pivot as well. But but that experience was fundamentally, um, uh, it, it made me realize how much I have to learn as a leader. And... <clears throat> Um, you know, all of a sudden I felt apart from instead of a part of the team. I wasn't mm. in the flow anymore. I wasn't leading, uh, you know, creatively. 
I was um, leading the traditional way. And uh, it didn't feel good. I didn't feel good about the situation, obviously, um, but about the way I was behaving. And so that led me to um, <clears throat> meditation. It led me to three years of multidisciplinary research in the areas of uh, creativity, unconscious bias, uh, uh, neuroscience, quantum physics, spirituality, um, uh, inspiration, intuition, on and on. And I... Just for the record, I've been through some really rough times in my life. I never went to quantum physics. That was never, my response to depression has never been quantum physics. Well, it was interesting. And it, it was more, my question was, why aren't we leading differently? Why? Mm. That was the question that led me to the research. And, um, and I noticed a thread that their research matched my experience when when we were doing really well for a decade we were in that flow we were all connected right we were we were playing you know we were mm -hmm. not adhering to the status quo to how things are supposed to be done and that's when we were winning so um so i think it's you know because we've all been conditioned to uh, lead in this way, status quo, whatever you want to call it, traditional leadership, that in order to extract ourselves from that kind of conditioning, <clears throat> that we do have to um, take a look at ourselves and kind of question what we're doing. And sometimes it takes failure, uh, which I think, you know, was a great learning ground for me. Uh, to help me to learn how to stay in my best possible self more consistently, uh, especially when the shit hit the fan. So I think it's a learning process that we're all going through and, um, <clears throat> and that we can, you know, help each other and support each other through it because, uh, it's not easy. Uh, we want to transform a system that is not working and broken leadership that has not uh, enabled diverse people perspectives and products for a very long time that takes a commitment uh, from all of us but we know it has to be done and and many people are doing it now I mean we see incredible leadership moving in that direction so I'm I'm hopeful I I, I can see um, change happening, it, albeit s slower than I want, but um, but I see it. You know, for me, one of the things that jumps out of what you just said, though, that I I, I will take issue with is that 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 we say, you know, this isn't working. Well, actually, for me, the problem is for a certain group of people, it's working really, really well. And it gets back to, you know, talking about you know the new Star Wars and oh, there's a black person in Star Wars to see that as oh, well, that's a that's a, a white person who doesn't have a role anymore. Or, you know, okay, there's a there's a new female Doctor Who. Well, that got taken away from the man. The idea that it's a zero-sum game of us versus them, there are people out there that see it that way. How do we get to them and convince them that they need to be part of this change as well? As I said before, uh, creativity is the most important skill in the 21st century, and we need to learn how to lead with it. And those who don't uh, make that, uh, transition 
are going to lose market share to those who do. So yes. it becomes a financial equation. Uh, the, the, you know, just look at the female market. The idea that they were excluding an entire population that they could have been making money from, if that's the way they want to look at it, uh, you know, and, and now diverse, you know, all the other types of diverse preferences and content that we've been ignoring, that's money. That's yeah. potential money. So, uh, that's the way to convince those people. And, and sort of in the same vein, you know, I, I just came back from, I went to a game convention in Tehran and I learned about, you know, I didn't know anything about the Iranian game industry. I'd ne it never occurred to me to, to think about the Iranian game industry. There are millions and millions of dollars being made every week selling games in Farsi. Interesting. You, you'd never thought about that. I mean, come on. You, you, when was the last time you seriously thought about, I should make games in Farsi because there's a lot of money in that? It, you know, and maybe there okay. is or isn't a lot of money for you in it. But somebody is making millions and millions of dollars selling games in Farsi. Interesting. And, and being, and, and that's just one example. I mean, we could talk about Brazil or Turkey or Korea or, you know, obviously Korea is a huge market. But in all of these places, the idea that, you know, I, I'm going to need to understand how to work with people from diverse cultures and how to work with people with diverse languages and and diverse religions. If I want to make money in those regions, I can't have a, a, a studio that doesn't understand those issues. So again, it seems to me to be a financial decision. There's just so much in, uh, opportunity, uh, you know, and now that we're addressing this issue head on, um, y you know, I, I think, um, I think to your point, the, the leaders who may not have wanted to make a change before have to see the financial opportunity that is presented now, uh, because we're, um, because we're looking to so many different genres and, and niches and points of view that we never even, um, allowed in before. Or, or we simply didn't even think was important enough to address. That's uh, truer, yes. Yeah, you know, I, in, in, yes. In, in retrospect, you know, going back, you know, when I was when I first got into the game industry in the the early '90s, I don't remember ever having a meeting or anything where somebody said, "Yeah, we're not going to let women work in the studio," or, or "We're not going to make games for women." It was it was much more. Like you say, it was common wisdom that why would you why would you make games for women? That that doesn't make any sense. It just didn't didn't seem important to anyone at the time. And and you know, going and looking at the success of a product like Candy Crush, which I think has like a sixty five percent female audience, how many billions of dollars did King dot com make on games for women? And there was a time in the industry where we didn't think that was important. Right. It's true. All right, so this has been a great talk. I think there's some wonderful stuff that we've we've gone over. Um, I, I really thank you for, for taking the time to talk to me. Uh, there's one last bit of, of business that I want to talk about before we go, um, which is there is a, a convention coming up in, in your home city of Seattle. And I believe you actually curated some of the sessions for the Beyond Diversity uh I, I believe it's called Beyond Diversity, Mastering Bias Before the Robots Take Over. Um, and this is part of the Unity and Diversity Initiative at Casual Connect. And I was wondering if you could just tell me a little bit about what's going on there. Yeah, so uh, on July 31st, uh, there's a diversity day. And um, in, in the morning from 9 to 1, 
there's going to be that uh, talk that you just mentioned, and uh, <clears throat> there will also be a talk by Daryl Ray, who worked with Brenda Laurel at Purple Moon. It's called Meaning, uh, Making Meaning, and uh, that will address your question earlier, Chris. Uh, how do you make change within a company? Uh, mm. You know, just you yourself. How do you go about doing that? What's the strategy? What are the conversations that need to be had? What are the questions that need to be asked? Uh, and then we're going to have another Bucking the Status Quo 21st Century Leadership for Diversity panel. Um, uh, Elizabeth Olson will be moderating that. And um, and then following that, we're going to have a diversity workshop uh, and then in the afternoon, there's also some diversity sessions. Uh, I didn't curate those, but um, it's going to be a really interesting uh, day, and we're hoping uh, to get as many people as possible. It's free as well. Oh, neat. That I did not know. Mm-hmm. And this is this is going to be held uh, where in Seattle? Uh this little hotel that I cannot remember the name. So you're going to have to post that after. Sure, it'll be. I'll put all that info in the in the info okay. box. But but it should be a good time. It's it's uh it's being hosted by Casual Connect, and for the five or six people listening to the show who don't know, Casual Connect is uh, one of the larger casual game uh, conferences, and they they're doing their show in Seattle. So this will be the day before that conference. So if you're coming in for that conference, it's certainly worth. Uh, coming in a day early, or if you're in Seattle, it's worth coming by to, to be part of this. That would certainly be something fun to do. All right, so that's what that's what I've got. Thank you so much for having a chat with me today. Thank you, Chris. I really enjoyed it. And that's it for the show today. Thank you so much for being here. I just want to give one last shout-out to the Diversity Symposium. That's going to be held at the Motif Hotel. I looked it up. That's in Seattle. It's going to be on the 31st of July. That's a Monday before Casual Connect. It's free, and it backs right up into the show. So by all means, go be a part of that. If you're enjoying this show, if you're enjoying what's happening, let me know. You know that you know the link for the Discord is down there in the info. You know I want you to put this on your Facebook. You know I want you to put this on your Instagram. Let your people know. Tweet about us, whatever. Come on. we got to get more tweets than Trump. Make that thing happen, and I'll see you on the next show.